0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're uh, continuing today in 1 Corinthians and looking at chapter 11. I'm going to take a long way around. I know that's not a happy thought to say at the beginning of a sermon. The question here, we're dealing with the issue of the Lord's Supper. And what I want to talk about is how sin and death are connected and how we're delivered from sin and death and how that relates to the Lord's Supper. And so as we approach it in chapter 11, I'll read here from verse 27 to 28 in chapter 11. What is most obvious and most overlooked is that Paul is calling for self-examination, self-judgment. There's really the development of human agency in those who partake of the Lord's Supper. It's certainly not a magical thing in the way that he's describing it. And here in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Romans 6, when he talks about baptism, he tells them, you know, in both instances, remember your baptism, remember the the Lord's body. Examine yourself, examine your life in the light of the death of Christ. So let me read verse 27 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the death of Christ is clearly what is celebrated as a point of reversal of our slavery to sin. Our application and understanding of this reversal in the Lord's Supper, as well as baptism, is part of the process that Paul appeals to here in this communion, meditation, or his appeal to communion. In Romans 6, his appeal to believers to fully enact in their lives the death of Christ. And so part of this is that we understand what it is to, you know, what is it we're applying, what is it we're trying to live out. And of course, part of this is the original Passover meal was celebrated as death passed over the Jews and their exit from slavery. And so to slavery from sin is going to be through Exit from the slavery of sin is going to be through the death of Christ and our active participation in it. The question is, how does the death of Christ address our slavery to sin? And how we answer this, in part, depends on how we read Romans 5.12, because this verse has become a huge obstacle for many people. And the danger is that we mystify the problem and the answer. And this is what has occurred if you look for a minute at Romans 5:12. Therefore just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity whereupon all sinned. In this reading which I've given you, it's the standard reading, that standard understanding of the church up to the late 3rd century. And it is still the understanding that continues in the Eastern Church. And I don't know if you caught it, but the picture here is that death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. A parallel verse to this that there is no controversy about as far as I know is 1 Corinthians 15:20 to 22 But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep for since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive And so the picture here is that, you know, the humanity in Adam and those in Christ, those are the two possibilities. And they're poles apart in regard to life and death. Death reigned through the first Adam and life through the second Adam. And sin follows the reign of death and righteousness follows the reign of life in a similar sort of cause and effect relationship. The transgression of Adam resulted in the condemnation to death for all. You know, it's obvious the access to the tree of life, or if you don't, you know, people die. We can pretty much see that. But the one act of righteousness resulted in life for all people, and with this life, things are made right. That's Paul's argument, you know, throughout chapter 5 to verse, chapter 8 in Romans and here in Corinthians, he's using the death of Christ, that you would live rightly. And this being made right, of course, does not bypass human agency, human will, the very point of the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves, judge yourselves, Paul says, in light of the recognition of the body of Christ. Now, let me give you the mistaken translation of Romans 5, 12, that probably in many of our Bibles, it it is in this mistaken understanding. And this arises originally in the Latin Vulgate, that I think obscures or it even makes impossible the meaning of the Greek original. The Eastern Church was spared this reading and the notion of an original guilt I think because of its knowledge of Greek, they had access to Greek, whereas Augustine did not. It took the theological genius of Augustine to ensure that this fundamental misreading that I'm about to give you is going to shape Western theology. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Augustine has done is flipped it. What the Latin Vulgate has done is flipped it. That is that sin is given precedent over death. And what Augustine provides explanation for, he he says, in whom all sinned. Instead of, you know, in Adam whom all sinned. Instead of what we get in, I think, the original, and that is in whom all died. Augustine says, nothing remains but to conclude that in the first man all are understood to have sinned because all were in him when he sinned. Now whatever it means that all were in him when he sinned, and Augustine will link it to sexual passion, he's a little vague. But in some way everyone is born guilty and damned in the eyes of God. And because they're guilty and damned, or because... They all sin mysteriously. Even Augustine says, Isn't this mysterious? Death then spread to everyone. Even for those who have done nothing, you know, infants, presumably upon conception, it's as if they have sinned. Human agency is completely you know, corrupted and actually left out of the picture here. And this mistranslation will, of course, reverse Paul's picture. What it does, it denies us access, I think, to the meaning of the death of Christ. Instead of death spreading to all and thus giving rise to sin, sin is made the cause of death, such that anyone subject to death is a thought, oh, well, that's because they've sinned in Adam. Paul has no such concept. This mistranslation, this misinterpretation, make nonsense of Paul's explanation of the propagation of sin through death. And as a result in the history of the Western Church, at least in a portion of that history, sin's propagation is mostly left of a mystery. And so what I want to do today is dispel that mystery. I think there's no mystery there. Because what we're doing in communion, what we're doing in baptism, what Paul is explaining to us is something that we have full access to. It makes the idea, uh, I think, of original guilt, original sin in an Augustinian sense, makes, it makes nonsense of the death of Christ that delivers us from the grip of sin and death. It makes nonsense of the reversal enacted. You know, this is the picture in baptism. We die, we enter into the death of Christ, and we're raised, we have the life of Christ. That is that sin is a particular orientation to death, And salvation is an undoing of that orientation. And of course, uh, living this out, uh, what we're called to do is what Paul is describing in his discourse on communion. It's this reign of death which accounts for the spread of sin. And interwoven throughout the passage is in Romans chapter 6, is the universally observable truth, death reigns. Verse 12, death spread to all men. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, the many died. Verse 17, death reigned through the one. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death. And as this last verse concludes, sin reigned in death, not the other way around. That death is the explanation for the propagation of and the work of sin, to say nothing of salvation. That is, that we have to understand that sin is an orientation to death to understand how the death of Christ undoes that orientation. Augustine's original sin directly contradicts what Paul says, by the way, in verse 14 of chapter 6. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the manner of Adam. In Paul's explanation, there are those who have not sinned as Adam did. There is no concept of Paul of everyone's sinning in Adam before they exist. But death reigns, and we all can see that. We don't need Paul to tell us that. So sin struggle in Paul's explanation is a struggle for existence, for life in the face of the reality of death. This is why the story of Abraham that Abraham is depicted as relinquishing the struggle, and the faith of Abraham is Christian faith. Though he were as good as dead, Paul says, due to his and Sarah's age, their childlessness, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body as good as dead because he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb... Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Abraham's faith, Abraham's faithfulness, is that God would give them life, a son, in the midst of the reality of death, of their death. Age of their incapacity to have a child. His faithfulness, our faithfulness, are summed up there in chapter 4 as resurrection faith. So partaking of the body of Christ is to partake of his life, the fellowship of life. It is not clear how resurrection faith would have anything to do with sin were it not for the fact that sin is the orientation to death. Maybe we just call it death denial. Death denial is reversed in Abraham and Christ. There is death acceptance. You die with Christ. You're baptized. You partake of the death of Christ. This is my body. This is my manner of death. Take up your cross and die as I have died. Take up your cross and follow me is the communion appeal. That's what Christ is describing as he gives his body. So what the Lord's Supper and Baptism both mark pertains to the manner in which death is in the orientation of sin has a grip on us. It's not just the problem of death, but it's what we do with that problem. And the resolution to the problem. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ? Chapter 6 verse 3 to 4. Have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Have been baptized into his death. Therefore we have been buried with him. Through baptism. Into death. Into his death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead. Through the glory of the father. We too might walk in newness of life. When does that happen? That all happens in baptism. It happens at the Lord's Supper. It happens in the Christian walk. That we begin to live out this resurrection life now. And we depart from the reign of death now in our manner of life. But many, and I think we are not immune from this, have been so inundated with the notion of an original guilt equated with sin, and it's become obscured. It's not open to explanation It's not open to the idea of sin as an orientation to death in which Christ undoes that orientation. Sin reigns in death, not simply because people are mortal or or already guilty, but because sin arises in conjunction with death in which people deceive themselves, right? This is the original lie. You won't die, Life in and through. This is Paul's explanation in Romans 7. You can have in the deception, you imagine there is life in the law. Or you imagine there is life in yourself, in the ego, the I. There's life in the Tower of Babel. He doesn't mention Babel, but that's the implicit background to chapter 4. Abraham is called out of these people, the Babylonites. All of this amounts to what Isaiah characterizes in a favorite passage of Paul, Isaiah 28, 15, as the covenant with death. Christ has broken the covenant with death, and that's where a key messianic passage occurs that Paul appeals to. In communion, we locate life in Christ, and not in the law, not in the the tower, not in ourselves in the manner of the death, of his death, which is connected to his resurrection. So the irony of sin is that it is a taking up of death, a living death, under the auspices of having life. We imagine we have life when in fact the thing that we imagine is, you know, the law, whatever it might be, whatever you might imagine, that it's not life at all. The deception This deception of imagining that you have life when you've taken up death, that is sin. That's the definition of sin in the New Testament. Sin depends then upon an already existing death. And this death then is taken up as life. And salvation is an undoing of this orientation. I just explained it. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly, Paul says in verses 5 and 6, be like him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Paul will use this language again and again, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, the word there is actually the word ego, ego, It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the life and death of Christ is a reversal, an undoing, a freeing up from the hold that fear, you know, this is the language of Paul in chapter 8, also in Hebrews, that the fear of death no longer enslaves us, no longer has a hold on us. Our old self was crucified. We have died to sin by dying with Him. And of course, in all of this, there's no sense of paying off a debt or in some way satisfying the anger of God. In fact, in this picture, it's not aimed at God at all. It's aimed at the human orientation. And so in Paul's explanation, There is the fact of death for all, and sin is the enslaving. This is chapter 8, verse 15. You know, that we no longer fall back into the slavery to fear of death because he has rescued us. Hebrews 2.15, very similar verse. This fearful slavery to death. He frees those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There's the sin problem. It's openly explained and we can see how Christ reverses the problem. What we rehearse in the Lord's Supper, maybe we could say it in the language of Romans 6, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. He's saying to the Corinthians, don't mistreat the weak, don't Bring your supper to church and eat in front of people who have no food. Consider the weak. Consider, you know, be loving. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You've died to sin. Now do what you are or be what you're supposed to be. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's picturing righteousness as something that we begin to actually do, put on, practice. And you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. As Christ was raised from the dead, we walk then in this newness of life. And so this is the correlate. The reorientation brought about through his death provides access to life. And so we no longer take flight, we're no longer in denial, but we enter into the one who has accepted death, Christ Jesus, and we die with him. We've solved our death problem in Christ. That's Christian faith, that's resurrection faith. Sin, I think, is obscured for many of us in the Western church because of a notion of inherited guilt, notions of total depravity, which are not open to explanation. They completely relinquish, or almost completely, the possibility of breaking down the logic or the illogic of sin or any notion of how salvation addresses sin and its propagation. And, of course, Calvin makes this even worse, that in his picture of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, he will attribute the propagation of sin to divine ordinance. He says, well, God needed it, which is peculiarly perverse. The result is that sin is not subject to explanation. What I've just done, I said, well, we understand what sin is because we understand it through salvation. But what happens in much of this thinking is, well, salvation is understood through sin. And sin, then, is misunderstood. It's a mystery. You can't understand it, and so you can't really understand salvation. The whole thing becomes a mystery. And maybe the great tragedy here is that Christianity, in this misreading, is rendered irrelevant to real-world problems. Paul's entire point is that sin can be explained and understood, and sin, we mean something real by this. You know, it's not simply drinking and dancing, and, but it's dealing in death, right? Anybody that believes in evil believes that evil is connected to death. Death reigned, violence, war, murder. The recognition that, you know, for even the human sickness is an orientation in ourselves. Masochism, sadism. If we believe in evil, then it has to be connected to the problem of death. And we can say Christ defeated death. He's overcome violence. He's overcome evil in the human psyche, in the human soul, in the human spirit, in human culture, as we have it in the church. So God has condemned sin in the flesh so that it can no longer deal out death. Paul says in chapter 8. Those in Christ experience the death to sin and the new life. And the sentence of death is passed on sin, which is the likeness I'm reading here from Romans 8, three. It's in the likeness of sinful flesh. So those who are found in his likeness through baptism, and I think that's what we're to realize in communion, experience this death to sin rather than death by sin. Christ's death defeated death and founded a new human subject, a new humanity, a new Adam, grounded in life, in the spirit, in participation in the Trinity. And so this is what we celebrate. This is what we remember. This is what we realize in community. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website, at ForgingPlowshares.org